Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listnick Behind the Curtain, my opportunity to get to depart from the worlds of politics and law, which I cover on television, to talk about the beloved and passionate world of theater here at WGNRadio.com and the podcast Behind the Curtain. What an honor it is today to talk to somebody who you want to talk about as being a, a kind of pioneer in modern day theater and, and having an imprint uh, in theater that will last for generations to come. Say hi to my next guest, Gail Papp is uh, a name in her own right, but also the widow of uh, Joseph Papp, uh, who, of course, began the public theater years ago. We're going to get that whole story from her. And it's all now memorialized in a book called Public Private, My Life with Joe Papp at the Public Theater. If you are a theater fan, you go to New York, you know exactly what the public theater is all about. Gail, it's an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here with you. So, <laughs> look. A lot of theater people listen and watch this podcast. They can see us as well. And, you know, not everybody uh, has great history with it. So I, I need you to explain for the the uninformed, uh, if you would, a little bit about the public theater and its mission, because it, it's always had a very special mission and it goes back to Joe's, oh. Joe's goals. Okay, I'd be very happy to do that. Uh, the public theater is, first of all, it's a complex of five theaters and a, a pub uh, that's in Greenwich Village. Uh, in New York. It's in a, one building. They're all very small uh, venues. Uh, our largest uh, theater is uh, 299 seats. It goes down to 99 seats and other uh, stages in between in size. It was founded in 1967 uh, by Joe uh, as, a, uh, as a place to do new American work. Uh, and uh, at that time in the 60s, to devote a, a big space such as this building that he acquired uh, for that purpose was considered uh, amazing. Uh, there, there were new plays being done here and there, but they were kind of in basements or in, uh, old church stages. Uh, but nobody was building a whole building to this kind of enterprise. So it was really quite new. We, we opened with our first show there. Uh, with the very first and original production of Hair, the musical, yes. which uh, got developed in a kind of a, I would call it a somewhat chaotic fashion uh, at, at our place. We only had one theater then. We hadn't built the others. So uh, Hair was what opened uh, this new enterprise of Joe's. He, he had been very active in the theater before that uh, in New York City doing Shakespeare in the city's parks, for free, not charging admission. So uh, he first he done it different places around uh, the city, and then he was able to build a two thousand seat amphitheater in New York City's Central Park. Uh, although it was opposed at first because people didn't like that idea too much of free admission, but he got that established. It's been going strong ever since. Uh, he believed passionately that the arts should be accessible to the public in New York City, as well as elsewhere. When he opened the public theater, uh, which is around the time that I came on the scene, this is back in 1965, it was way back then, <laughs> uh, I was hired as a temporary 
summer worker at the outdoor theater. And then I stayed on uh, when he decided to establish the public theaters. I was there for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. So I I saw this transition from, you know, Shakespeare free outdoors to do works indoors downtown for minimal charge of $2 and 50 cents. And it was devoted to new works by writers that at that time in that era had been previously uh, ignored and not produced because of their ethnicity or whatever and gender also. So he was quite devoted passionately to that kind of enterprise. And uh, it uh, was not a good business model if you have a building full of uh, he's eventually six tiny theaters by Broadway standards. They're all exceedingly small. There's no way as a business model you're going to make money to support that enterprise. You have then, as a nonprofit organization, to raise all the money to produce the plays in that kind of building. And so uh, that's what he started to do. And uh, it's been many really amazing works that have been done there. For people who don't know the public theater, they might say, oh, they've probably just done some shows we've never heard of. Well, you, you already mentioned Hair. Uh, yeah. I recently interviewed Ben Vereen, so we had some memories to share about, about that show. Yeah. Uh, but in case people are wondering, and correct me if I get any of these wrong, but Chorus Line, Angels in America, Hamilton, and more, most recently, Here Lies Love. Right, exactly. Uh, and I could I could go on Mystery of Edwin Drew, which my friend Greg Edelman was was in. Right. I I just have to ask you what and Tito Rivera and so many others. Uh, but I have to ask you what what is it that led you? And you were a script uh, reader at a point in your career, right? Uh, yeah, I'd done some script reading, and then as I stayed on at the public theater, I, I became in charge of the department that uh, developed new work, new plays, and new music. And that's what I wanted to ask you. How is it? And I'm sure not every play you ever put up there was it was a raging hit. But, you know, when I look at and Normal Heart, let me not forget Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart. What was it about a play that you and Joe would watch and say, we're putting this one up? And, and then it was like magic. Well, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh, I've struggled to answer it uh, various times. You just have to go by your own feeling and your own taste, your own passions, and uh, rely on that. It's exceedingly fallible and imperfect. I can't defend it on any kind of objective grounds, except as you have more experience in the theater, I think uh, you can recognize certain things that might come together uh, for a good production. Uh, If you have uh, some kind of instinct or feeling for talent in others, I think that helps. Uh, Joe, Joe Papp certainly had that. He could he could recognize talent whenever he encountered it uh, instantly. He had a great, great feeling for it. When you say talent, most people watching us are thinking, well, she means to start because, by the way, let me also toss in Denzel Washington. And, and, and this I could keep going. I could go on forever uh, with who's been there. But here's the question. Did talent to Joe. And you, I want to include you in this. You were married, and I know you had a lot of input throughout this. Was the talent in the in the actors, the the directors, the Michael Bennett's of the world, the Corey, the talent, or was it the whole package? Well, nothing came as a whole package, really, uh, that, that I can remember. 
although Michael Bennett, whom we mentioned, certainly brought in this amazing coterie of uh, hugely talented people uh, in the performing arts, but who are already pretty well established and recognized, like Morgan Hamlisch or Ed Clayband. But uh, the recognition of talent is something that I think most people can understand, because if you go to see something, and let's say in a, a production with 25 people, there's one person that you can't take your eyes off of, because you find them so fascinating, their presence on stage, where they move, where they talk, whatever it is, that just you know makes you pay attention and interests you. That person has some kind of performing talent. I'm talking about performers now, uh, and uh, you know whether you are paying attention that way or not. I mean, you don't be told, oh, you should pay attention. You know, you have that kind of interest. That's a recognition of talent in that person that they have this ability to draw you in and draw your eyes to them on stage. Denzel. <laughs> exactly. Denzel Washington. Any of the people, that, uh, many people like Denzel uh, Washington got their start, you know, early on in their careers. I could name it. You know, James Earl Jones is a very young man. Kevin Klein, Meryl Streep also, uh, just uh, many, many people. Uh, Raul Julia, the wonderful Raul Julia. So uh, they had this kind of uh, talent. You could not take your eyes off of them. When it comes to uh, uh, the writers or composers, uh, I'll take composers first. Someone like Rupert Holmes, for instance, who mm -hmm. I got to know quite well. He's also a mystery writer, uh, like yourself, right? Yes, I am, <laughs> and, yes. Yes. Uh, and he You've done your homework. How about that? <laughs> He, he wrote this marvelous book, which I read. He sent me an early proof of it last year called Murder Your Employers. So it's a marvelous mystery uh, book. Uh, it is inimitable fashion. So uh, when he came in with his idea for, uh, he'd never done a musical before. Um, and I went to see him uh, sing, and I knew he did wonderful songs and so forth. And the lyrics were really good. Uh, and I saw him perform, and I left a little note for him at the door of this club where he was singing in New York City. And I said, are you interested in theater by any chance? So please call me. We well, called me the next day. And he had this idea for a mystery musical, right, based on uh, Dickens' unfinished last novel called The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which is a mystery story. Dickens was then in competition with uh, other people writing mystery, so he decided he'd do one. But he died before he finished it. So Rupert had this marvelous idea of he, presenting it as a music hall entertainment based on the book with the characters, uh, and that it would be uh, unfinished, kind of like the book that Dickens wrote, but he would provide the audience with the opportunity of voting on the ending of the story, and he he wrote, I think, five different endings, both in terms of plot and the music involved, and everybody was rehearsed in the five different endings, which would end differently every single night that this uh, musical was performed, depending on how the audience voted. So it was like a free-for-all. You never knew how it was going to end the <laughs> night you were there. 
it, it was just his execution of this marvelous idea was just marvelous. It's no wonder, by the way, it won Tony for best musical. I was there. I was one of in one of those audiences. As I said, my friend Greg Edelman was was in it, and of course Stephanie J. Block and Cheetah Rivera, and you know, oh, yeah. these, oh, these, yeah, what what names? It, 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 Rupert's accomplishment. Uh, it, it was just extraordinary to me. Uh, you know, I, I compared it in a book I've written to uh, Venus uh, arriving fully formed on a half shell in one of those <laughs> illustrations. It would just arrive fully formed. He thought about it for a lot uh, of years. And uh, as he began to compose it, uh, he would send me these tapes, you know, the old cassette tapes of, of yesteryear. Uh, and I would hear these marvelous songs he'd sing on his. Uh, 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 piano and record and send to me, and they were just amazing. Uh, it was really so well conceived and so well executed out of his amazing talent, which was multifaceted. And this musical, by the way, was, I think, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, possibly unique in the history of the American music, musical, in that he wrote the book, he wrote the lyrics. Uh, he wrote the music, uh, he wrote the songs, and he wrote the orchestrations also, all of those things, which are usually separated in the musical theater amongst yeah. kinds of talented people in those categories. He did all of that himself. He didn't have any collaborators. He didn't need them, which is just amazing. Just amazing. Yeah, we, yeah. we think of people like Lin-Manuel Miranda or others who can do several of those things, but but they still need collaborators to do Probably even Barry Manilow and Harmony. I mean, they still need collaborators to Absolutely. do what you're doing. Did, did you guys have... So I want to talk about the normal heart for a moment. I had the the <laughs> just the rare treat to meet Larry Kramer uh, back when the show played in Chicago. Um, oh. And yeah, and, and here's the thing. When you write about that show, you talk about it as being initially four hours long, jumbled themes, the gay brother, the straight brother, and all of that. Right. How much, if any, of a role did Joe, did you play in the development of a show? And I picked Normal Heart because that's probably one that underwent significant development. Yeah, yeah it, it sure did. Uh, it, Larry, he, he'd had very bad experience with it, shopping it around. And he had this urgency about it because it was in the midst of the horrible AIDS a uh, plague uh, when him. nobody was paying any attention to it. So he felt it had to get out there. He wanted to bring attention to it through the play. So um, he had poured a lot into the play, which was huge amounts of statistics about AIDS, uh, medical statistics, which were not really uh, performable <laughs> in a sense, a uh, dramatic sense, but uh, they were in the, in the uh, script anyhow. And then he had a very urgent uh, story about his straight brother, his relationship to an older straight brother, which was real, a real story. And so he was very dedicated to having that fully uh, put forth. Uh, but the essence of the play was about his being on this uh, founding organization uh, of uh, gay representatives to try to deal with the ignoring of the AIDS epidemic. And then the fact that he had a combative nature uh, in public regarding that issue, uh, he disaffected some of them because they felt he was imperiling the organization. And so they dismissed him from the founding board. So his play was in the aftermath of that. And there's little bits of that realistic, uh, real-time 
experience that he'd had in the play. I didn't know anything about that experience that he had. So in a way, that was a blessing uh, because I couldn't read, uh, you know, real people into these characters. Mm. So when he uh, came to me with the play, uh, very angry about its dismissal in other quarters in the theater, apparently, uh, uh, he uh, was very anxious uh, to have it done immediately. At first, he was angry because Joe didn't read it right off the bat. Well, you know, it was 400 pages long. I kid you not. <laughs> I mean, this is very long. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. If you tried to perform. Well, it was four hours long, so that's 100 hours a page, right? About 100 pages an hour. Yeah, if you tried to perform a 400 page. But, but was, there, was there something about the AIDS theme? And of course, sadly, Kramer eventually died of AIDS himself. Um, but also Angels in America and Stephen Spinelli and, and the folks who were involved in that show. Was there something about, I'm thinking of so many of these shows even Chorus Line, in a very different way, which tackled issues that had never been tackled before. I, it might have even been one of the first shows with swear words in it. Uh, yeah. You know, and I remember as a little kid, I would, I was like playing the album a million times, having my parents listen. To what there's, <laughs> but what was it always about trying to break new ground as you were doing shows, which so many of those did. And let me toss in one more: Lin Manuel's yeah. Hamilton, the notion of casting, you know, Hamilton, uh, Hamilton is as Latino or 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 George Washington as African American. I mean, just turning theater on its head right well it, you know uh, this is what the writers come up with so it's uh in terms of the producing aspect it's what you respond to in writers uh and the work that they present and have in mind so joe was responsive to certain kinds of writers that presented this kind of work to him and it's true today you mentioned hamilton which is of course post joe but it's uh the theater that he founded and Oscar Eustace, who's now the artistic director, but certainly feels the DNA of the organization. And uh, Louise Miranda, who sits on your board, by the way. Yeah, he's the chairman of our board, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And so uh, the, that DNA of the original passion that Joe had for neglected people, for people not being paid attention to enough, who were talented and had something to say, is certainly there still. And it was always part of Joe's role as a producer. He certainly wasn't uh, in the theater as a producer to make money uh, because he never did make money in the theater. Uh, other people had hits that went to Broadway did. Uh, Joe was in it for, uh, I think, the satisfaction that he got uh, in what he did, which was to produce certain kinds of work. He got a satisfaction from the success of those works and they're reaching the public. That had a great deal to him. He had kind of the soul of an artist himself. Yeah. But uh, you think, well, the producer is the guy that raises money. You know, he sits back and things happen and so forth. Uh, Joe wasn't like that. He was very involved. He was very in- avail- available. He was very good uh, in helping writers understand their work. And uh, if he got behind it, he really tried to make it happen in the best way possible. And, you know, uh, when, I, when I think about the pandemic we all just lived through, if you think about it, the first the group that took it the hardest on the chin, arguably, were was the theater world and the performers and the actors who were out of work. And yet, who was the first group to put on the benefits and raise money and do everything they could to help? It's the people who needed the money most themselves. And I, I just my heart, I always <laughs> contributed to those causes. There's yeah. no better world than the world of theater and acting. I, I do want to ask you, you were married to Joe for 26 years. 
Uh, and, yeah, I was with him for 26 years. I mean, if you want to know about the public theater and the history and all these shows we're talking about, it's all in the book. But I found the book to also be a love story, a, a, a really a, a testament okay. to Joe. And here's my first question. Somebody who's going to watch this interview is a, a local PR artist here in Chicago, uh, PR talent here in Chicago named Kathy Taylor. And when I told her I was going to talk to you, she said, I did my master's thesis on Joe Papp and the public theater. My. So she can't <laughs> wait to watch this. I thought I'd let you know that. But at oh, the same time, I wanted to ask you something that maybe Kathy and all her research in graduate school would have never found. Today, she's one of the best PR artists, uh, PR people here. Can can you tell us something about Joe that somebody who's researching him wouldn't have found and wouldn't know? Well, uh, you know, the research uh, possibilities and facilities are uh, like other works, maybe theses or something, uh, that have been written about Joe. There are two other very fine books that have been written about him. One is a, a culturally oriented biography by Helen Epstein, who's a wonderful writer, and the other is something he originally collaborated uh, with, uh, which is Oral History by Kenneth Turan. Those are both very fine books. But you mine, were married to him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but mine is a first uh, personal memoir, which is different. It's a different kind of book. They all, I think, complement each other because history is a woven fabric of different accounts uh, from different people who have different experiences of the same events and the same people. So given that, my, that's my view of history. Uh, I, there's room for all of it. And um, I, I think that in terms of the research that a person can do, uh, it's limited to the public record, right? Uh, and maybe some interviews with those still alive that, uh, you know, have an experience. Uh, that's, that's why I've given you the question. You, you I mean, more so than anybody <laughs> doing research. Well, I, I think uh, what people don't get from, say, the public record uh, and many descriptions of Joe uh, is uh, what a deep feeling and uh, reflective person he was, because his public persona was often described as arrogant, aggressive, whatever you call those kind of words. Uh, it went on forever. Uh and uh, he was that way in some circumstances, but uh, my experience, my life with Joe was a very different kind of person. Uh, he was deeply reflective. He was very philosophical. He was funny. He was delight to be with. Uh, he was not grown uh, in any way whatsoever. He was not a congenitally angry person uh, in his personal uh, style with friends and family. Uh, he was uh, very balanced and circumspect in many ways when he de dealt with problems. And uh, but he was also at the same time very passionate, a passionate person who truly cared uh, what he was doing in his life. And uh, Is that what drew you to him? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I was just fascinated. Uh, when I first started working uh, at the uh, the uh, public theater and in a, it was also called the New York Shakespeare Festival, yeah. I was just fascinated uh, by his idea uh, of a democratic access uh, to theater and then a democratic uh, conduct of a theater 
in terms of its opportunities for all artists, regardless of ethnicity or gender and so forth. Well, you know, I grew up as a young girl in the horrible decade of the 1950s when I remember applying as, as a, you know, just just past teenage uh, for a trainee job in editorial work. Well, I came from a family of editors. I knew a little bit about it. But so I appeared for an interview and I was rejected on site by the personnel manager because I was a female. And this job had been list, listed in the New York Times under help wanted male because the jobs were segregated by gender in my day. Mm-hmm. And if you accidentally showed up for a trainee job under M for male and you were a female, you were rejected on site as I was. Wow. So I understood from that, you know, what any kind of prejudice of that sort, no matter what it is, uh, feels like. And it gave me a very good base for understanding other people's feelings uh, of automatic rejection because of those factors. And I thought, this is crazy. I mean, it's outrageous. It's insane. It was just the beginning of the women's liberation movement. So I was just getting introduced to some of that. And uh, it was very instructive, although it outraged me at the time. But it gave me a very good base for understanding other people's outrage and resentment that came through in what they would write and perform in the theater. Uh, I understood that from a very deep base in myself, having gone through that kind of experience, which I could translate into other situations and other people's lives. It gave me a tremendous feeling of identification with a very important play that I just loved called For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough by Antezaki Shangi, uh, a wonderful poet and a fantastic dramatist. Uh, I identified so much with that work. Uh, it was really uh, kind of puzzling to me at first because she writes about her own experience as a black woman uh, none of which was similar to anything I had ever experienced or been through. But I identified it very strongly with it. For one thing, with the magnificent poetry, he was a great poet. And uh, she became a very dear friend of mine as a result of, of our association in that play. And um, my feelings about it, I think, were available to me because of what I'd been through, even though it was totally different, different cultural world and a different experience entirely. But I could understand what she was talking about, even though I had no experience similar to hers. Uh, there was a kind of a universal connection. And it was a, a great gift from my early turmoil of being rejected and so forth and so on. It was a gift. When you and Joe weren't talking theater, which I, I had to consume <laughs> so much of your lives and time, I'm right. guessing, you don't quite say this in the book, but I'm guessing you spent a lot of time talking about politics, whether you love or hate for it, but there had to be a lot of politics talk. Well, there was. There certainly was. Uh, there, <laughs> inevitably, uh, there were uh, things that you know we ran into. Um, did that influence the decisions? I mean, I'm not asking for your politics, but did that influence your decisions in terms of the shows that you wanted to do, that you wanted the public to put on based on what was going on in society? I'm thinking of the AIDS shows, things like that, where there was a message that had to get out. Right. But you have to understand, uh, in the producing aspect, the creative producing aspect of a theater, uh, unless you put out a call for something, I want shows that deal with this or that subject, you 
uh, are essentially being guided by what comes to you or what you can find and encourage coming to you. You're not the creator of it. Uh, you can be very responsive to the creator, but you are not yourself the creator of those particular subjects and uh, uh, ideas and plays. Uh, they come from the people who are writing them. Those playwrights have to decide where to go first. I'm curious, was Joe, yeah. maybe early on in, in, in his career, your career with him, um, you know, maybe early on people went other places first, but I can't, I mean, the public, the public is just so legendary to me that I feel as though at some point, you're right, people have to come to you, but I'm thinking to myself, and that's exactly what they did. They wanted to go talk to Joe Papp. Yes, they did. Uh, I, I remember when we first opened, uh, uh, it, it Plays started coming in all of a sudden, a lot of plays. And uh, our first seasons were an amazing number of plays by black writers uh, who hadn't been able to find any kind of open door uh, or opportunity elsewhere in the whole country, yeah. only here and there, little dips and dabs. So uh, Joe, I think in our first two years, produced plays by 10 black writers and uh, also the first Black writers to win the Pulitzer Prize was Charles Ordone. And I think uh, you guys do bring into noise, bring into funk. And, and it was no, no place to be somebody. Uh, it was his way back. Uh, okay. Yeah, bring but in. You did, you did do the other one later. It was just one of my favorite shows of all time. Uh, George Wolf's uh, amazing. Yes. Piece. Uh, and uh, I, I was just uh, 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 Joe's pub uh, discussion. Uh, with George, uh, we always enjoy each other's company so much because he just makes me laugh all the time. <laughs> <laughs> He's an amazing guy. He's so brilliant. And he just has this marvelous uh, film out about Rustin, Bayard Rustin, the civil yeah. rights uh, yeah. organizer. So uh, anyway, uh, uh, George is responsible for that show. And he became uh the artistic director at one point for 10 years at the public. 1993 to 2005. Absolutely. And it was a brilliant decade of his leadership there. Uh, just just absolutely wonderful. So uh, he, he was an important person who knew Joe, whom Joe had uh, clearly thought of as a successor to him when he was having to think those things. Uh, because of his illness uh, in the last year of his life, uh, George was clearly in his mind uh, in that role. Although I don't know that George thought of himself that way, but uh, Joe certainly did because he recognized the talent and the passion mm. and uh, the, the kind of uh, ability to take risks, which Joe always did. As a producer, you had to deal with with what was going on in the economy and society as whole. Joe is not here, obviously, for the pandemic we just lived through. And, and coming out of the pandemic, you correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but I think it's fair to say that while maybe big theaters and stuff are wondering how they can regain their profit, when I think of not-profit theaters or the public theater, I thought the issue you had to face was just, how do you survive? <laughs> yeah. And what would would Joe have been, what would Joe have suggested to the current team with the public theater coming out of the pandemic to do, or would he have been proud of the way it's all been handled? Because you certainly are surviving. Well, I, I think uh, every theater, big, middle, or small, is having tremendous problem now because Chicago too. As you know, uh, the pandemic is the audiences don't want to go into closed spaces anymore. They got used to streaming, etc. Even good movies is so much, and uh, there's also been this huge uh, racial reckoning 
upheaval at the same time and so forth. So it's uh, really a tremendous challenge and the donor uh, 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 money supply uh, is not as fluid uh, or significant as it used to be. All these things coming together, it's a real crunch. And how do you deal with it? How would Joe deal with it? Would well, you cut back on the season? Would you know? And those are some decisions that theaters are making today. I don't know exactly what Joe would do. I think he, if if it required uh, it measures that some theaters have taken, he would doubtless do some of them. Because if you're looking to the survival of an organization that doesn't have the income anymore and doesn't have the audiences coming anymore, what do you do in the face of that kind of thing? Um, I can't really tell you exactly what I think he would do. As time goes on, and I, and I know you're in touch with the theater world and stuff, but I guess I'm thinking, you know, 10 years from now, 20, 30 years from now, to me, Joe Papp, the public theater, is just a foundation of theatrical history. Do you feel that the public theater and the work of Joe, and again, I always include you because you're married to him for so long, but uh, with him for so long, but do you will, will the theater world and community look back and how will they look back on the Joe Papp and public theater experience and, and what has theater learned from the public theater? Well, uh, I think, you know, many of the things that he initiated, uh, such as, you know, uh, free Shakespeare in the parks has been done elsewhere. So there is a kind of uh, influence uh, that's been emulated elsewhere and taken a hold. I've talked to several other people that had very significant experiences elsewhere in the country with a free Shakespeare in their parks. We do that in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Right. So uh, I think there's that kind of influence. Um, I think uh, there is uh, something that uh, trickles down in terms of what originates from the theater. Uh, You mentioned Hamilton and current uh, uh, days. Uh, It certainly has an impact. And the fact whether people know it or not, where it comes from or what the history of that is, it conveys certain aspects of what the public theater stood for and stands for continuing to today. So it has an influence. The influence continues. Whether people are informed about its history and origins or not uh, may be open to question, but it certainly exerts an interest. And uh, But it my, also sounds like he lives on and you all live on through people like Lin-Manuel Miranda, people who share the values, share the purpose, and carry on to the next generation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it does carry on uh, it, it, in some interesting kind of mystical way in my mind. Uh, what Joe started and what he represented uh, uh, became embedded in the DNA of his theater. Uh, people that work there now, they all kind of know about that. We have something in our program, actually, that you know, tells you know started this year. And this is Joe Papp's thing. So, so you can inform yourself a little bit about that. But, you know, the, uh, the the fact of what the theater represents, and it now has, you know, five theaters plus the pub uh, functioning, uh, it, 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 somehow the nature of that uh, is kind of trickled down. It's not always easy to pinpoint it because there's also a kind of entrepreneurial, nonprofit entrepreneurial aspect to the theater uh, in that it wants to succeed in reaching audiences. And uh, it's had a remarkable record in reaching Broadway audiences and the whole commercial area, which is 
you know, been worked out so it's satisfactorily done. And I would uh, argue teaching audiences and, and letting them succeed in that way is, is what the theater is all about. I want to be sure that I properly thank you, uh, your work, Joe's work. It just, obviously you can see it's impacted me and in, in, in through all these years. And I think it's amazing. The book uh, is public <laughs> private, my life with Joe Papp at the public theater. I would hold it up at the green screen. We'll block it. Uh, by Gail <laughs> Merrifield Papp. It's available where better books are sold and on Amazon as well. God bless you. Thank you so much for your time. I, I hope you're around for another 80 years. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It really has. Be well. Enjoyed it. You too.